again Genesis chapter 6 as we pick right back up where we left off last week. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you and praise you and we glorify you. We lift your name on high. We gather here to be gathered here in your name. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, move in this place. Illuminate, bring to light the things we need to hear individually, but also as a body of brothers and sisters here, your children. Just help us to hear what you have for us this morning through your message. Uh, speak clearly. Uh, and help, I pray that we have ears to hear, um, eyes to see, hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen, amen, amen. <coughs> Title uh, is really the, the wickedness to overflowing. And we're going to see here in these two chapters... God's calling on a man's life, Noah. And wow, what a huge task that God said he has prepared this man to do for him. And we're going to see the well-known story for most, even for those who don't even know the Lord, who only knows of God. Um, or the most deepest of atheists know the story of Noah and the ark. And today we will see as we move into the next section of the Genesis, as we've seen the very first two chapters, the formation of the heavens and the earth and the creation that God created mankind. He created animal kind. He created the birds in the air and all the insects and why he created and have uh, mosquitoes. I'm still you know, baffled by that one, but I'm sure there was a purpose and a reason or as part of the fall. But we also know that he created the sea life as well. And all the vegetation, the plants, and everything that we, have, we see. And then the formation, then we saw the fall of man, where sin entered man, mankind. And uh, we still deal with that consequence still today. And now we move into the next section, which is in chapters 6 through 9, which is the flood. And we see the account of the flood and how God used that to to keep his covenant, his promise, and that is to bring a redeemer to fallen man. And we'll see that this needed to happen to keep his promise of the redeemer or the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to come to this earth. Now, God made man in his likeness. But sinful man now begets or brings about children in his likeness, which is a sinful man. We saw that in chapters 5, verse 3. And those who gave their life by faith in Jesus Christ, or those who put their trust and complete trust and faith in him, we were all in the beginning born sinners that needed to be saved. So as we were born sinners, we see in Psalm 51, 5, but when a sinner is born again and puts their faith in Christ, he or she begins to grow or change into the likeness of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. We see that in Romans 8, verse 29, and also 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Eight times, if you remembered, if you were with us, in chapter 5, you and I found that the very sobering phrase there and he died. Death is an appointment set by God and not an accident. But like the life of Enoch that we saw in the lineage here of Adam, we see that Enoch, God's grace was reigning and Enoch believed God. And we see in the scripture that he walked with God in a middle of a godless society and was witnessing for God. And we saw that also noted in, in the book of Jude, verses 14 and 15. Enoch did not die, as you remember. Remember, he begot these children, then he died. He lived this long, he had children, then he died. And we kept going until we got to Enoch in, the, in his, the lineage, and Enoch did not die, but God raptured him out of this land in his body and, and he out in the twinkling of an eye. 
God revealed what he will do for his children in this day as well, where we will, we pray and hope that God will come back and rapture us out of here in the twinkling of an eye. But we see that Enoch did not die and God raptured him away. And this is that blessed hope for all Christians. And you can go back and read Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. Now here in our story as we continue here in Genesis chapter 6, we see here in verse 1 now. Again, here's a, that word now transitions that next step or the next moving forward in the, the story that God has given us here in the scriptures. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So here in these first two verses we see a lot of dynamics taking place. And a lot of um, discussion around these two verses. But let's take it a piece by piece so that we can understand it. The first is that we see during this time that the multiplication or the explosion of the population was starting to take place on the land. We see that these during these days a rapid expansion especially the fact that we saw in the lineage that people were living hundreds and hundreds of years old. Many of them were not even until they were 300, 400, 500 years old before they even started having children. Because of the gene pool, they were healthy and they were not contaminated at that time and people were to live forever until the fall of man and sin entered man and that's when the, the death uh, rate started going from hundreds of living Forever to now living a short life, as we see today, the average they say today is about 70 years. But during these times in the pre-flood world, life expanse was large and, and alive. And what was happening was they were having these children, but they were born sinners. They were born corrupt. They were born in these in conditions. But we see that not only with the multiple or the explosion of the population was taking place, but something else very seriously was taking place as well in verse 2. We see that an ungodly intermarriage was starting to take place between where we see here God notes the sons of God and the daughters of men. Many controversy around who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men. Many have believed that the sons of God were those from the line of Seth. And the daughters of men were the, from the line of Cain. And this describes the intermarriage between the godly line and then the ungodly line. Something God specifically prohibited. And we see that also noted by God in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 4 and 2 Corinthians 6.14. That as a godly person who follows God, who's given their life to God, is not to marry an ungodly person who wants nothing to do with God. They are not to marry unequally yoked, as we see in the scriptures also. But this approach of belief that the, these two is the Seth line of lineage and the Cain line doesn't always line up in the scriptures clearly on that. There's a lot of holes when you go down that line of thinking. Doesn't answer some of the questions. Why did this make God so angry enough to wipe out the entire earth's population? Or why was there something unnatural about the offspring of these unions? Why would the ungodly person uh, uh, intermarrying and, and having children with the, with the godly produce giants, produce unnormal size, big, massive people and giants at that time? It, it doesn't explain that. But it's more accurate to see possibly on these other views that people have. Some believe that they were actual demons, the daughters of men, actually entering into, or I mean the sons of God, entering into the uh, human women and having these unions or these giants or producing offspring that would be uh, described here in our scripture today. But there's a third view, 
And the third view would be this unique demon-possessed men and the daughters of men are human women. Meaning, we saw in the scriptures that God declared war against Satan. When Satan came in and deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden, God promised that he was going to bring about the seed, capital S, the deity, Jesus Christ, through woman. And God said right then and there that he was going to crush Satan's head. But in the meantime, he also recognized that Satan and his works and his, the fallen angels, the demonic forces, that's what fallen angels are, that one-third that rebelled against God, those are demons, would come against and would bruise. Would bruise the Son of God, or in this case, the Messiah, the Redeemer, but he would not win. But that didn't stop here, as I see the scriptures, does not stop Satan from trying to take out the possibility or the ability to have the seed to come about through a godly lineage that God designed. So how could Satan do that? I believe as we see the scripture, he was about to contaminate every line of possibility of where God could not bring through a godly seed through woman. And that demonic forces were actually demon-possessing women and having the children. That is how I believe, or through man, to have a mate with the, uh, the women on the earth, human women. And that is where he was trying to contaminate or bring about the fall of man. So we can see the phrase, the sons of God, yes, clearly refers to angelic creatures when it was used in three other times in the Old Testament, Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and Job 38.7. The translators of the Septuagint translated sons of God as angels, and they clearly thought it referred to angelic beings and not people descended from Seth. And I'll give you a few more scriptures here for you to go back and ponder on today. Jude 6 tells us of the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own habitation and then go, Jude continues on in Jude 7 to tell us that they sinned in a similar manner to these having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh. And so here in Genesis 6, and as we see in Sodom and Gomorrah, and that story, there was unnatural sexual union taking place on this earth during this time. And it's useless to speculate on this nature of this union, whether it was brought about something like demon possession or whether angels have power to permanently to assume the form of men is not clearly revealed to us in the scriptures. So we hold as that regardless of the view, a lineage between the godly lineage or ungodly lineage versus demon possession versus demons themselves, it brought about a society that was wicked and violent. Even in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, tells us Jesus went to these disobedient spirits in their prison and proclaimed his victory on the cross over them because they had to be locked up because they were doing what they were doing to the women of, the, of society. Now, there is an objection to that position that we also see in the scripture. And we see that in the understanding is found in Matthew 22:30, where Jesus said, angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. But Jesus never said angels were sexless. And he was also speaking about faithful angels, angels of God in heaven, not the rebellious ones. So there's a lots of views in there. Regardless, it brought about a society that God said, is so wicked, I am so grieved by what I'm watching and seeing, I must do something. As part of my plan to preserve his covenant and his promise to bring the Redeemer to save man. So we conclude why Satan sent his angels to intermarry or not. Try, Satan tried to pollute the genetic pool of mankind with satanic corruption 
to put a genetic virus to make man, human race, unfit for bringing forth the seed of woman, the Messiah. Now, in verse 3, we see, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old and men of renown. So we get a little bit more clarity of what God is trying to bring across to us here. Now in this verse 3, where God says, My spirit is, no, is not going to strive with man forever. God is patient. God is long-suffering. God is willing and willing to go a very long time dealing with man. But God said there's a point in time where enough is enough and he will bring judgment upon man. So he says, my spirit is not going to strive with man forever. For his indeed flesh, the way they live their lives in these days shall be 120 years. Now, many people believe, oh, we're no longer going to live 900 years old, 969 years like the oldest man, Methuselah, or, or, or like others we see down to 369. I think it was 365 was the youngest that we saw in the lineage. That What he's referring here to is that he gave them a timetable. I'm only going to strive with you for 120 more years. And that's when we will see the flood will take place. Not that the average age is going down to 120, but that I'm going to strive with you for another 120 years. And we're going to see why here in these, these chapters, why 120 years? Because it's going to be broken out very clearly for us as we look at the, at the scriptures here. But during that time, there's there these giants on the earth. Um, we can see that that, you know, that these, this intermarriage was causing and, and bringing about things, and that they were intermarrying. If you notice the last part of that verse, those with mighty men of, who were of old and men of renown. That's why I lean toward the belief that it's demon-possessed men. Because demons were looking for the biggest and strongest of men to have this demonic power to be able to overthrow that they were taking a look at men of renown, kings, people in positions of power, to be able to use them to bring about the destruction of man. But it doesn't matter what Satan tries to do. God is going to deal with that. And he has dealt with that. And we know by the scripture he, is, he did deal with that on the cross. So God said, I'm not going to allow the human race to stay in this rebellious place forever. There's going to be a point of no return in our rejection of God. People today, even today, reject God and the things and the truths of God, and they think they're getting away from rejecting God. They think that we can live however we want to live and, 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 the, and anything we want to do and however and that somehow God just accepts that or some people don't even care if God accepts it or not. That's what was happening in these days. But there is going to be a point where God says, my spirit is no longer going to strive. There's going to be a point of no return in your, our rejection of God and God will not woo us to him forever. There's a point where he will say no more. Because once someone is born um, in, onto this earth, God constantly by his spirit is bringing and leading people to him. Because our fallen nature wants nothing to do with God. But God said, no, no, I created you for a relationship with you. I, I came to die for you and to save you, to give you life. Apart from me, you have no life. And, but God said here, and he continues to say today, he's not going to always woo. To, he's, there's going to be a time enough is enough and there's no more point of return. 
And he, by his grace, even given them a timetable of 120 years. But even when God even shows you and reveals truth to you, many people just reject and just deny what he, they just heard. And so we see in this, continue in verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. In verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we see here that during this time, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, the people's hearts, were in only of evil continually. Evil people at that time only thought of things of evil things, doing evil things. And when we say evil things, things that go contrary to what God said is good and right. They were doing their own thing, living their own way. Jesus said even in Matthew 24, 37, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. What were those conditions? God said, I'm coming back just like the days of Noah. Noah was a picture of showing how God was going to come about and bring and save his people that are righteous, those who are made righteous by faith in God and the promises of God. He says, you know, and you just skip ahead about 4,639 years, and here we are, and he says, I'm going to be coming back just like the days of Noah. What were like the days of Noah? Well, we see here, even in our verses, the conditions of the world before the coming of Jesus would be like the conditions of the world before the flood. What were they? We, Genesis 1, an explosion of population. We see that today. Sexual perversion, Genesis 6-2. Very abnormal sexual perversion will take place on the earth. Do we see that today? Yes. Do we see demonic activity in verses Genesis 6-2? Yes, you can even see the secular world talking about demon possession. You can see people understand demonic forces because you can see the movies and, and, the, and the music and everything else talking about these things because they understand it's, it's proliferating all across our society today. And it was happening in the days of Noah as well, and God said it would be. We see constant evil in the heart of man, Genesis 6-5. Is that not today? Oh, I don't know. Yes, because people's hearts produce things, comes out of their mouth and their behavior. Look at the, 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 the things that are around us everywhere. Things that are just normal today, that they should just accept today, is evil in the eyes of God. And in society, it's not evil. Wrong will be right and right will be wrong. Are you with me? See, because when you sit there and the, the music and, the, and the, the movies and the, the gaming and all these things that are just, it's a plethora of it everywhere you look. What was not good, it was not right, and it was, a, it was a, in a society that was moral, that was understood right and wrong, that God, the conscience of God, you see the severance of God's uh, consciousnesses of people's consciousness are being severed. They're getting to a point where it doesn't even phase them to see the things and, and hear the things they're doing. That are contrary to the word of God. And then Genesis 6.11, we get to that, will be widespread corruption and violence. If that is not clear to you in today, if you just watch the news and watch the, the, the corruption and the violence that is so blatant and so easily seen but is accepted and people get away with it is it's it's mind-boggling of the violence and the corruption that is happening at the highest of level of all nations it is insane to me 
But it shouldn't be a surprise to you and I. Why? Because we know what the scriptures say. And the scripture says that the end times, which I believe we're in the end times, it will look just like the days of Noah. And that's exactly what we see today. And that's why he says, when you see these things happening, look up. Get, keep your eyes on the Lord because he's coming back for his children. And I can't wait. But the Lord was sorry that he had made man. He was, not, he was, he was just, just looking at what was taking place and he saw, he was grieved in his heart. God's sorrow at man and the grief in his heart as, are striking here. God knew. God knows all things. But God knew all along that this was how things would turn out. But our text tells you God is looking upon mankind he created and it grieved him. That they did not want a relationship with him. They just wanted to live as we see in the scriptures they just lived by the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life they wanted the world and everything the world offers them more than a relationship with God and it grieves God to no end here as we see in, in the scriptures but Noah found grace of the lineage Here's Noah at 500 years of age, as we will see. But we see, we see here, but Noah found grace in the eyes of God. So while God commanded all the earth to be cleansed of this population, to destroy the population, he found one man whom to begin again. Noah. God showed grace and, and he said, Noah is my man. Noah didn't earn grace. You can't earn grace. He found grace. No one earns grace, but we can all find grace in Jesus Christ. And he understood the promise of God, and he believed it, and that's what God made this man righteous in the eyes and gave him grace to be saved for the purpose of bringing the Redeemer. And it was true then, and it is true today. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Romans 5.20. In verse 9, we see now God calls Noah to do a huge task for him. God calls Noah to build the ark. We see here in verse 9, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Or Japheth, if you want to say it that way. So we see here Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. A description of a man who walked with God. And it's not unique to him, not only refers to the righteousness life of Noah, but also to the fact that he was yet uncorrupted by Satan's attempt to sow in that virus or to bring about a, a genetic pool of mankind. He could bring about what he, God is referring to him as this Translate this perfect in his generation. It has not been contaminated. It was that gene pool that from Noah and his family was still a pure in the genetic profile. What's interesting, I find, as I see the scriptures and we know the scriptures, he names here, God names Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. But that's not the order of the kids that he had, is it? Japheth was the oldest son. Ham was the youngest son. Shem is the one that Abraham comes through on that lineage. And that's why he names it first here in naming the three, my three sons here. Noah's my three sons is named right here. 
But these three sons will figure into the account of a significant way because God will use them as a foundation on the rest of the human race. We all came from Adam and Eve. All man came from Adam and Eve. All came through, as we see, from Noah. And from Noah, we see the three sons. And we all, regardless of where you were born and when you were born and what continent you were born and what family, it doesn't matter. We all come, we're all humankind. We all come from the same DNA. Now, we see here as we continue in verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we see the characteristics of what was taking place, that everything was so violent, so corrupt, that it's now it was time that God was going to implement his plan to bring uh, um, raise a man up, Noah, and his family, who was going to build an ark to save them and the animals on this earth. But he says, I will destroy them with the earth. So, so, so many people today who, have, who fight against the truths of God will say, isn't that really harsh judgment? How can a loving God destroy millions of people? Or whatever the population was at the time. How could God do this? Doesn't it show that God to be cruel or a monster? But everybody, every human already has a death sentence. Already has a time where they will die. The question is, is how do you live while you're alive? Do you live for God or, you do, or you, do you reject the things of God? That's the question. We're all going to die. 100% statistic, except for a few. Enoch being one of them. Elijah being another. And with our hope, we would be also raptured out of here. We won't have to physically die, but we would be in the presence of the Lord in a twinkling of an eye. But we see that the violence and the corruption was so bad that the end of all flesh has to come. For the sake of society, he, God had to start over here with Noah and his family because society had gotten so bad. Can you imagine living in such a place? But God used Noah. God said to Noah, I have a, a, I have a project for you. And it's going to be building this barge, this boat, this, this vessel, the ark. And we see in verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Some believe it today would be cypress wood. I'm not sure if we really, really 100% know, but gopher wood uh, is what was used. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. <coughs> the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window of the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above. And set the door of the ark in its side and you shall make it with lower uh, second and third decks. I'm not sure if we have, we have a slide that I put up. If you can catch the light real quick for me, um, Carrie, if you can just shut the light off there. I grabbed a picture of it so you guys can have at least a understanding of it. Can everyone see that? It's just a rendition. It looks like a shoe box. It's just long and narrow, not fancy. We don't know all the details. We just know that it wasn't powered. It was just designed to float. And is designed, even when you take modern technology today and how they build barges and how they do, and many of it is, this is perfect by the engineers and how it was designed. Now, if you take a look at that, the ark would be um, 
was as long as 30-story building high, or about 450 feet if we use the cubic measurement of 18 inches, which was from the tip to the elbow. It could be larger than that. They believe it could go up as high as 20 inches. So the ark was somewhere between 450 to 511, I believe, is the calculation, depending if you use 18 inches or 20 inches in measurement. They didn't have those, those infrared uh, measurements that we see today. We just point and click, and we see the little red dot and say, oh, look at the measurement. Or the ruler. Okay. No, no. They measured it by their span of, uh, of, of, of what we see. And what happened was it was built out of wood, and you can see the three different layers that was supposed to take place, along with a rooftop that has 18 inches, let's say, of the size of the window so that air ventilation and light uh, can come in and out. That, again, is just a, a kind of a rendition of what it possibly could have looked like. And you can see the different stalls of the animals, as we will see, will be planted. Plus, there's plenty of room for the food and people. So as we take a look at this, this 30-story building and high of 450 feet, and it was also about 75 feet wide, 45 feet high, that what described is not really a boat, but a very well-ventilated barge to keep everyone safely inside and allow to go through the floating during this period of time of the flood. It just needed to float. It did not need to sail anywhere. And as we take a look at this, even in comparison, it wasn't until 1858 that a boat was bigger than the ark was built. The ark was certainly big enough to do the job. The, the ark can carry two of every family of animals. There were around 700 pairs of animals, but the ark could carry two of every specimens of animals. There are about 35,000 pa 35, pairs of animals. The average, they believe, the average animal size was the size of a sheep or less. That means by the calculations of this, because it could stack up. If you've ever seen um, rail cars and they transport animals in the, like cows and stuff in rail cars, you could stack 500 of those in this, this vessel. Enough to handle 35 or 136,560 sheep in half of its capacity. Why? Why didn't God just tell Noah to build it to exactly the amount of animals and people? There are only eight people getting on the boat, we will say. Because of God's grace, God gave opportunity for man beyond Noah's family to get on that boat. He made enough for the animals and the birds and all the, the, those that crawl on the ground and fly in the air and the eight family members of Noah and all the food necessary to survive and by God's grace made enough room for others as well if they chose to get on board. But as we know the story as we continue, they chose not. So we see plenty of room based on the schematics and everything, even the necessary and the engineers and everything else capacity today. And obviously we see much bigger. The Titanic was much bigger. Queen Elizabeth II is much, much, even longer, twice, three times the size of this vessel. It was large, but we've seen even larger. But God said to Noah, you build the ark. You can't subcontract this out, Noah. God called Noah to do a work for him. He can't sit there and say, oh, God told me to build an ark. Okay, can you guys do that instead? So when God calls you to do something, he's going to give you the resources, the strength, and the wisdom to do that work. And so when someone says, I don't, oh God, there's no way God could use me to do this, well, ask Noah how he felt about the, the tasking that God gave him. It gets even more incredible as we look at the verses here, as we continue to look on here beyond the Bible, there's incredible historical evidence of the flood and of this ark. 
all two, over 200 different cultures around the world have evidence, historical evidence, of a boat called the ark, or at least a description of this, this ark, um, saving animals, saving this family, uh, and on and on. But we won't have time to go into all of those details. That will be a great Sunday afternoon search for you all. But one of the things that they did is they wanted to use this of wood, but then they used pitch, tar, to coat the vessel inside and out so that the water wouldn't leak between the wood. It's historically proven that John D. John D. Rockefeller, based on the scriptures, saw that pitch was used. He understood what pitch meant. That means oil. And he ended up going to the Middle East and actually discovering that oil and becoming very rich through that. But pitch was used to preserve this ark through the flood. And many even possibly say that God possibly will use this ark and allow that to be discovered uh, in this world so that people at the end time will be reminded of what God did with Noah before he returns. Second Peter 3, one, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 says, relates the future judgment to the judgment of the flood, saying, unbelievers willfully forget the world then existed, perished, being flooded with water. And God is reminding us today through the scripture, God is going to return just and make things right, just like he did when it came to Noah's time. In verse 17, and behold, I myself am bringing flood waters on the earth. To destroy from under the heavens all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. That's what he's saying to Noah. I establish a covenant, an agreement. that one, We're going to sign this paperwork here. I am coming to the table to have a covenant with you. Just like the marriage covenant between two people. They're coming together as a marriage, as a covenant that is what it is between that God designed. And you shall go into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark. To keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind... Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. So God says here, I myself am bringing floodwaters on this earth. That's what he tells Noah. Noah's going, what does that mean? Remember, they had not even seen rain before. Yes, they've seen water on the earth. They saw the rivers. They saw those things. They understood these things regards to probably even floating things on the water. That's not new to probably Noah. But the size and scope of what he wants to be built, no one's ever seen. Floodwaters and this rain that's coming, that, that's, what does that mean, God? What does that mean? I don't know what that means. Because he had never seen it. But he had to trust God and said to build this regardless of how he felt and regardless if he had fully understanding. God just called him to be obedient. And as a righteous man, as a, God, as a man who walked with God, all he needed to do is to be obedient to what God called him to do and just walk with him and do it. That's what God calls us to do as children of God. To, to be so close that all we're going to do is just be obedient to what God has called us to do. Even if we don't feel like it, and even if we don't fully understand why he's asking us to do it. But he said, everything on this earth shall die. But I have established a covenant with you. I have established an agreement with you. I'm going to protect you from this flood. And then it describes out to the details, not only you, Noah, but your wife, 
and your sons and your sons' wives with you will be preserved in the ark, will be protected and brought out of the evilness and protected from the judgment of God. Because God does not judge his people with the unrighteous. Let me state that again. God does not judge his children with the unrighteous. He brings them out of that judgment before he judges. And we see it through the very beginning here with Noah's Ark. We see it with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it many places, and we will see it at the end as well when he raptures his people out of here before God brings judgment on this earth. So he sees and brings a clear picture for us today. We can only wonder what Noah felt like when he heard these remarks announced from God. That God is going to say, Noah, you are going to play the essential role in the greatest judgment and the greatest salvation the world has ever seen. Woo. Talk about a little pressure of uh, what God's called you to do. And you thought ushering was hard. <laughs> or doing a little something for Operation Christmas Child was really stretching you. Or going up to say hi to someone who's new to the church. You thought that was going to be the end of it. How, can you, how are you going to be able to do that? But God sits here to know and says you're going to be playing a huge role. But despite the, the dramatic judgment that's coming, God will make a covenant with Noah and his family. And God will use Noah to save a remnant of each animal so that the earth could be populated with people and animals after the flood. But notice here, and I love this because so many times the kids will ask questions from church and children, and even adults will ask. Now, how did that happen? I mean, how did, how did, how did Noah get these animals on this ark? He didn't, really. God called the animals to come to Noah. Noah didn't sit there and say, you won't believe how hard that was to get the kangaroo. <laughs> Have you ever tried to put a lasso around a giraffe and hang, bring them in and wrestle? That? Think about the alligator moment. No, he didn't have to worry about these things. Because remember, man and all animals did not eat meat. They were all vegetarians at that time. It wasn't until after the flood when they, the animals started turning and eating one another and eating man and man-eating animal. So all they had is fruits and vegetables and the herbs of the ground, remember? They, were, they loved salads back in those days. But the thing is, is that God brought two by two how in the nature and the natural thing of how God created man and woman to come together in marriage, to populate the earth. God obviously designed the same thing in the animal kingdom, brought male and female animals together two by two. <laughs> to, can you imagine the society around at this point thinking Noah has lost his mind? What is he building here? For a oh, for hundred years, he's building an, a boat for something they don't even know what is going to happen. What is a flood? What is rain? The people thought he was crazy. And then all of a sudden, God starts bringing migration. Some people say, how does the, the, the you know, if you look up in the sky today and you see the geese flying and they're migrating. And they go, how do these, these birds fly from here and go right to the same destination thousands of miles away? Because God has built them, designed them, and, and calls them and moves them the way he wants them to do. And he used it right here, right in the very beginning. He called not only the animal kind, because not every kind had to be on the boat. You didn't have to have every kind of, an, uh, of dog. 
They just needed to have one kind of dog. And after the flood, then the population, then the, the genetic pools change, and that's why we have diversity. But all they had to do is one kind of animal. And God brought them to Noah, one male, one female, so they can populate and make more, have babies, so they can have more dogs, more giraffes, more all the species after they land and come out of the ark. It's very simple. It's not complex. It's natural because God designed that for mankind and for the animal kind. It's pretty simple. You actually have to choose in your mind to ignore the truths of God to deny what you see naturally. So what happens is, God said this is the plan. So what happens? Noah was obedient, verse 22. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. He wasn't half truth. Remember, when God says to go from point A to point B, but you only go to halfway, that's partial, dis partial obedience or partial disobedience. It's not obedience. Going and doing everything that God's called you, that is obedience. Doing it halfway or what you want to do and how much you want to do. That's not obedience. But God was obedient. He did according to all, keyword, all that God commanded him to do. Even with this incredible staggering job ahead of him, Noah did it. We don't hear of him complaining or rebelling or questioning God. God, why did you call me to do this? Why This is impossible. How can this ever happen? I don't feel. You don't see any of that in the scripture. He simply obeyed. The words here says, so he did. According to all that God commanded him to do. The Bible presents Noah as a great hero of God's. He was an outstanding example of righteousness, Ezekiel 14, 14. A preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5. Noah commanded the, word, the world by offering salvation in the ark that the whole world would reject, Hebrews eleven seven. We see that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So for his 120-year ministry, as he's building this boat, he was preaching God promise of the Messiah. He was out there preaching the uh, preacher of righteousness, the truths of God to everyone would listen. 120 years. Building a boat that no one's ever built before. Trusting in God that what he told him would come about. And not complaining. Or questioning God. But just do it. Then what's, what happens is here, we see in verse, into chapter 7, we see that then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Do you love the words right there? Noah said to, uh, Lord said to Noah, come. He did not tell Noah, go. Why? Because God was present in that ark. And he said, come. And that's what God calls you and I. When you're out there rebellious and going against and out there in the world, God simply says to you, come to me. He draws you to him. Because that is where safety is. That is where peace comes. That's where the joy comes. That is where you have life is only by coming to him. So Noah was called to come because he believed God. He trusted God. And so he came. And all of his household. And then it says here, he says in verse 2, you shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, 
a male and his female, two of each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. So obviously by this time, they understood a difference between clean animals and unclean animals. The clean animals, the unclean animals were just going to be two, one male, one female to preserve afterwards so they could populate. But for the clean animals, they are to bring seven pairs of them so that they could then populate because they were also going to be used for sacrifice after they came out of that of that uh, out of the um, out of the ark. Verse three. Also seven each of birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. And for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth he started at 500 if you remember he was 500 years old and in that 100 years period of time before the flood started because it says right here he was 600 that means he has a hundred year old had a hundred years had passed not only did he build this boat but he also had three sons and those sons grew up. So now you can see what their age limit age is, is somewhere in that 100-year age range because they were old enough to have wives. But they were obviously still young, according to the previous generations. So 100 years old in that realm of the kids. But we see here that Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds and everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Here we are. God bringing the animals, the flood water's coming. He says it's going to start raining. It's the end of, the, of his part of the ministry of before it actually is going to go into that ark. Everything is taking place here. He's, God is making it very clear where we are in the timetable, how old Noah is now, 100 years later, everything we see. Then he says in verse 10, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. So here we are. It's, it's, and many people miss this in the scripture. The ark is complete. Everything is in place. The animals are coming. They're bringing them in. They're putting them in the stalls. They're putting them in place. The, the food has been gathered. He's, it's been taking a place for 100 years now. And we see that now God calls him and his family to do what? Get on the ark. Go into the ark. You're going inside. And does everything happen immediately? No. God takes seven days here, we see in the scripture. Seven days he is sitting there as these, after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. So during those seven days, they're sitting there waiting for it all to happen. Isn't that amazing? That they're sitting there in the boat going, do you hear anything? I don't hear anything. What's going to happen? Can you imagine the people outside mocking them? For a hundred years mocking, what are you doing? Where are you guys going? How? Now what got me is you study the scriptures, I would think, you would think in your natural mind, it says, when you saw these two by two and all these animals coming out of nowhere and no one was hurting them and, and forcing them, they were just coming right in like little obedience and into the car, you would think it would catch the people around's attention, wouldn't you think, when they see a miracle taking place in front of you? It didn't. That's why the scripture says, miracles is not what causes someone to recognize God's movement. So many people, even religious people, oh, we want to see a miracle. We want to go to church and experience a miracle and, and we want goosebumps and all this. That's what I, you're, you're, you're missing completely against what God is saying. 
you hear by listening to God's voice speak to your heart. Not by through miracles and experiences. Here's an entire society experiencing something you've never seen before and watching in front of your eyes for a hundred years and that did not change the hearts of the people. But God's grace still gave seven days that the waters of the floods were on the, before the waters of the flood on the earth. And in verse 11, in the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep broke open, and the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So here they are in the ark. We see that it's taking place. He's getting them in there. God shuts them up into the ark, seals that. No one is now going into the ark. It is now too late. The Noah, the animals, his family, waiting in the ark for seven days for the rain to come. They had never seen rain up to this point. That is a real test of faith. Believing God even when you, haven't even, you don't even see it. To wait a week after more than 100 years of preparation. But then it happened. We know by the scriptures in the previous God created where the earth was filled with water but also the firmament that surrounded the sphere of this earth was also water in the heaven. And he not only opened up the heavens and opened up those windows and the water from the heaven came crushing down. But also we see here the change of earth take place and the ground started heaving up and water came out from the ground. That, that whatever layer of water within the earth just come crushing out. And filled the earth. Incredible. Imagine the sound. Imagine the feel, the, the rumbling, the roaring thunder of the water. And no doubt the whole geographical catastrophic change that took place on this earth at that time. But this is when the great waters, which were above the firmament, Genesis 1-7, opened up. That huge blanket of water come crashing down, and for 40 days. Now the number 40, as you know in the scripture, is associated with testing and purification. Especially before coming into something new and significant. We see that Moses' time in Mount Sinai was for 40 days. And look what transformed in Moses' life. We see that in Exodus 24, 18 and Deuteronomy 9, 25. The spies' trip into Canaan, Numbers 13, 25. Israel's time in the wilderness, Numbers 14 and, and chapter 32. Elijah's miraculous journey to the Sinai, 1 Kings 19, 8. And then Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Mark 1.13. There's a time or darkness or testing that can place, and then out of that, newness comes. Verse 13, on the, same, the very same day, Noah and his, Noah's son, Sham, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and their three wives and his son with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort uh, of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two of all the flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. So it's interesting to find through this account of what happened. Many people say, what happened to, the, uh, uh, to Flipper? What happened to the whale? Well, they didn't have to worry now, did they? <laughs> With all the water. So they didn't have to bring them on, on board. No, no, no Shamu was brought into the ark. It was, they had their own little domain in the water. 
It was just those with the breath of life, those animals and creeping things on the earth. And finally, as we finish up here, now verse 17. Now the flood was on the earth for 40 days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits up, upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, the birds and the cattle and the beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life and all that was on the dry land, uh, on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both male, man and cattle, creeping thing and the bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. So the description as we see here in these chapters are very complete. There is no question in our minds, did God bring a flood on this earth? Yes. It was not localized like many people try to disregard anything of God's uh, uh, doing. Then you say, oh, it was just a local flood. No, that's just ridiculous. If, you, if you're in your right mind, you know that's ridiculous. Because it was 100 years, he would have said, Noah, get you and pack up your, your kids and your wife and, and, and head west and get away from this area because I'm going to flood this population. It's ridiculous what people come up with just to, to deny the truth of what God has done. People said, oh, it couldn't have been all, all the entire earth. There's not enough water. No, the experts even today did the calculations. The earth was sphere. It was probably as very um, uh, round. They didn't have the, the, the mountains to the degree uh, that we had. But if you look at all the, uh, the water and it's all dispersed and put in its place, there's enough water to cover all the entire globe for about two and a half to three miles deep. So all the calculations, scientists, we don't have time to go into all those details. You can go back and do your research, be a Berean, do your research, study the scriptures, go look. But the facts are the facts even today. The mathematicians have done it. Every atheist have tried to deny everything that God says. And as soon as they go out and research, they've really determined, yes, God's word is true. So go please. If you question this, go research it yourself because then let me know when you become a believer. Because when you go to the facts, you'll find that God is right, and you've always been wrong. God's truth, you're not going to shake it. The most brilliant of atheists have tried to prove God's word is wrong, and they have not been able to do it. And they've come, and they've died. They've come, and they've died, and more will come, and they will die. But why don't they just accept the truth? It's right in front of them, and live. That's what God calls. 